When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. there fellow flyers welcome again to the plane crash podcast this is your host captain of the podcast michael bauer this is episode four of the plane crash podcast and today we will be discussing northeast airlines flight 823 that took off from laguardia airport in new york city en route to miami international on february 1st 1957 But before we get into that flight, we're going to start today's episode with a segment on the history of Boeing and the current situation the company has found itself in with the rollout of its new line of MAX 8 planes and the subsequent crashes of Lion Air Flight 610 and Ethiopian Airlines Flight 302, both of which were these new MAX 8 planes. Joining us today to discuss this topic is a Pulitzer Prize-nominated journalist and author of several books but one in particular entitled Higher 100 Years of Boeing. We're pleased today to have Russ Bannum on the podcast. How are you doing, Russ? I'm doing well. Thanks for joining us today. Absolutely. Pleasure to be here, Michael. So uh, Boeing is currently experiencing a storm of sorts due to the two plane accidents involving their new MAX 8 planes that have occurred over the last couple months. But what can you tell us about the history of the company? How was it founded? What year was it founded? Has it always had kind of this slow growth into what it's become today? Or have they had trying times in the past? Oh, my. Have they had trying times? We're talking about an industry in which you're spending years to develop a product, an airplane, uh, that is expected to have a lifespan of uh, a generation, you know, 20 to 30 years. Um, and to think you can nail it right <laughs> yeah. um, in, in a highly competitive industry mm-hmm. is wishful uh, thinking. Um, and yeah, no, Boeing has uh, endured multiple setbacks throughout its, uh, I guess, 102 years now it's been in wow. history. Wow, I didn't know it was that long. Yeah. And, and today really is just a blip. I mean, the 737 MAX mm-hmm. is a blip compared to uh, in the 1970s when it you know, nearly went bankrupt. Oh, really? Yeah. Where where was the company founded, do you know? Uh, yeah, it was uh, in Seattle. In Seattle. And uh, still has a very large presence in and around Seattle with its uh, manufacturing facilities, primarily in uh, Everett and uh, Renton. Oh, yeah. And uh, But headquarters was moved to Chicago, I think, about 10 years ago. Oh, really? I grew up in St. Louis, and I think St. Louis was... I grew up seeing McDonnell Douglas yeah. buildings everywhere. Sure. And everyone I went to high school with... Uh, had parents that worked for McDonnell Douglas, and then one day, <laughs> all those signs went away, and Boeing was suddenly on them. So. Yeah. Well, and McDonnell Douglas were two companies um, that uh, that merged together in, I guess, maybe about 20 years ago, maybe 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Hard for me to remember. It's been two years since I, <laughs> I wrote the book. Uh, 
What's interesting is uh, when Boeing asked me to, uh, or went to a publisher looking for a hundred year history and, and, and I sat down with the CEO, Jim McNearney at the time, he said, I, I don't want just a history of Boeing. I want you to write mini histories of all the companies that we acquired mm-hmm. over the past 100 years. I guess they all add up to what Boeing is eventually That's ex- is. So, yeah. So in effect, the, my book, Hire, is uh, a history of the U.S. aviation industry. I mean, they you know acquired McDonnell Douglas. Um, they uh, acquired uh, Hughes Aircraft, mm-hmm. uh, North American Aviation, which became Rockwell. They acquired that. So uh, it's, you know, the consolidation the industry entered into in the new century was, you know, remarkable. Yeah. I've, I've, I mean, with the troubles that Boeing's been having, it's, it's, I think, a bummer for not only the company, but all of us as Americans. Like, they're our American aviation company. We want them to do well. We've all been on Boeing 737s yeah. before. It's, this isn't good for anybody. So. You know, you're, you're, you're right. Um, you know, the industry, because it is a business, I mean, Boeing is a business, uh, is, is pressured by the need to, you know, make money. Mm-hmm. And one does that by creating ever more efficient airplanes at, at greater speeds, densities, you know, mm-hmm. passenger densities, uh, to uh, offset the effect of high fuel costs. Um, and uh, one hopes that safety is not being compromised. Yeah. Uh, and, and I don't believe that's the case. I, I, um, I, I was a bit, a bit chagrined when I read that Boeing, and I don't know if it's correct because mm-hmm. I haven't talked with anyone at, at Boeing, but it was reported that Boeing had offered uh, buyers the opportunity to spend a little bit more and get these additional safety features. Yeah. That just, that struck me as, uh, if, if true, uh, struck me as a mistake. Yeah. I think they've, I've, I think I've read a couple of articles in the New York times and I think they've even said that, that from now on, those are going to be standard. Yeah. But right. It must be something. I mean, that's the thought that I've had with this whole MCAS and max eight situation is that they didn't anticipate this being an issue. If anything, MCAS was designed to make things safer. Yep. And I, I, I think they just did not anticipate that this was going to happen. That it's not in their interest to have a rollout of a brand new plane that they're selling to everyone that they're building their future decades business on, have two of them go down and have, mm-hmm. you know, consumers know uh, instantly. Now they're going to think max eight in their mind is a bad thing. Uh, it makes me wonder if, you know, some sort of rebranding, some, uh, some sort of just name change for the product might be in order. Uh, could be. You mean the the seven thirty seven Max or yeah, the, yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, I think uh, I think that that's inevitable. I mean, in today's fast track flow of information, it's already starting to seem like yesterday's story. Have yeah. you noticed that it's it's not being covered with the diligence it was when it happened. Um, and you know, time heals all wounds. Boeing will certainly uh, survive this and and go on to prosper, and and we'll learn. Yeah, from the set. That's uh, the, kind of the whole point of the podcast is that every plane accident, while it's a horrible thing, mm-hmm. is just another way for us to learn something that can lead to a plane crash, and it makes flying today better. It's kind of like the old adage that failure is the first step towards success. True. If, if we want to make air travel as safe as possible and have a future where there are no plane crashes, mm-hmm. then all these plane crashes of the past have added up to the reality we live in now. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, you know, 3,000 years ago, the Greek word catastrophe meant both a disaster and an opportunity because it really is an opportunity to learn from that disaster and hopefully mitigate uh, future outcomes from the same cause. 
Yeah. No, that's very that's interesting. As far as uh, the history of Boeing, have this is a, you know an era that Boeing isn't going to be too happy when they reflect on their history. You know, <laughs> fifty years from now. Yeah. Have there been other times during their um, early history as a company that they had some rough uh, waters to sail through? I think I read something that they were. In World War II, they uh, made a lot of planes for the government. And then all of a sudden those, you know, orders yeah. go away or something. How did they survive then? Do you- well, so um, during World War II, uh, what happened was all the uh, aviation uh, manufacturers in the United States uh, halted their production of airplanes and turned their attention fully to making uh, warplanes, mm-hmm. bombers, flyers, and the like. Um, because uh, Boeing had, uh, I, I, it was the largest at that time, but it also had an ability to uh, manage the production of airplanes that no other manufacturer had. So the government appointed Boeing as the master contractor, if you will, mm-hmm. for the entire aviation industry. So Boeing was effectively in charge of all those you know, planes, many of which carried the, you know, the B-52 and, and the like. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but after the war ended, actually was uh, when, when, when all the manufacturers returned to making commercial passenger uh, airplanes and continued to make planes for the uh, military in what was now the, the Cold War. Uh, it was actually a boom period for, uh, for Boeing in particular. Mm-hmm. And uh, during the war, I've got a really interesting story. I think you're going to get a kick out of this. Cool. So have you heard of Operation Lusty? I have not. Don't let your mind wander. I won't. I'm, I'm, that's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> Stop smiling. <laughs> so um, it, was, uh, it stood for Operation Luftwaffe something, 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 but the acronym turned out to be lusty. And what had happened was the war was just about over. Hitler was in retreat in his bunker. And uh, he, he gave a, a sort of a final order that all of the aeronautical research at the various aviation production facilities that uh, Nazi Germany had uh, should be burned. You know, burn down these facilities. Don't let the enemy have our, That's, you know, technology. Yeah, our yeah. secret technology. Exactly. Yeah. Actually, I think the word secret is in that lusty too. That's the S. Yeah. And uh, so General Hap Arnold uh, realized, uh, well, you know, we, we need to do something about this. We need to put together a team to get over to Nazi Germany, find these secret aircraft facilities and learn what we can. Because during the war, the Luftwaffe, and the Messerschmitt planes that were produced were were more advanced than the the, the jets we were producing, mm-hmm. the fighter craft. And uh, so he selected a, 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 an, a an immigrant named Theodore von Karman, um, who to lead this team. And on this team was George Scherer, and he was a high-ranking Boeing aeronautical engineer. And they went over to Germany and they, you know, they asked questions, highly secret. Mm-hmm. Uh, they found out that there was a, a secret aircraft facility that had been camouflaged so you couldn't see it from up above in the Harz Mountains, if that's how it's pronounced. Mm-hmm. And they went to the facility and it had not been burned down. And uh, there was one person in there, was a superintendent. And he opened the door and von Karman knew the gentleman and they hugged. Mm-hmm. And, and Von Karman said, well, why, why didn't you burn it down? And he said, I, I just couldn't because, you know, so much, so much greatness came on here and we, we've developed such, you know, tremendous ideas for the future. Yeah. And so Von Karman said, you know, where's the blueprints? And he said, they're in a dry well 
uh, out back. Uh, before everyone left, they gathered up all the uh, papers and they threw it in the dry well there. They didn't have shredders back then. Yeah. And so the Operation Lusty team took out all the, uh, the paperwork and they found this drawing of an unusual looking jet that had swept back wings mm-hmm. as opposed to the traditional T type aircraft yeah. we had at the time. It had been thought that, that a jet could have swept back wings, but no one was ever able to test it in a wind, in a wind tunnel. And these blueprints indicated successful tests in the wind tunnel. Well, George Scherer, who was the aeronautical engineer uh, on, the, uh, on the team, immediately realized the value of these blueprints. And he quickly made some drawings of them, put them in an envelope, and sent it to, uh, uh, to Seattle. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, top secret. And in it, it said, stop all production. We're going to build this next. And anyway, that, that airplane turned out to be the 707. Oh, the man. first in the 7 Series, the first swept back wing jet mm-hmm. uh, in history, which really changed the course of, uh, of aviation history. It's crazy that uh, one individual yeah. disobeying orders saying, I, <laughs> I've worked too hard on this. This place is like a museum to me. I'm not going to torch it for right. humanity's sake. Isn't that wild? Led to the kind of planes we see yeah. at LAX and every airport we go to. Well, and the fact that he knew von Karman, who was uh, who had fled uh, Nazi Germany, uh, mm-hmm. allowed allowed for him to point out where the blueprints yeah, were. Yeah, you got to wonder if another guy showed up. Dry he, well. he didn't know him. He was like, I know. Uh, "I'm not going to tell you stuff." So. It's pretty wild. But anyway, that's you know. So really, the the company after World War II. Um, this was the jet age, age the so-called jet age. It did quite well until the 1970s. And that's when the, the twin recessions hit the company. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was just a confluence of factors, sort of a perfect storm. The cost of gas skyrocketed. I mean, not yeah. just for those in the long lines waiting at gas stations, as I did mm-hmm. uh, back then, but for, uh, you know, for all the uh, airlines as well. Uh, people had less disposable income, so they were flying less. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the airlines had over-ordered um, during the uh, the boom time, during the, the 50s and the 60s. Yeah. And it got so bad for Boeing, it, it neared bankruptcy. It was so close to calling it a day. And there was a famous billboard in uh, Seattle, right mm-hmm. above the I-5 uh, freeway that said, will the last person leaving Seattle turn off the lights? Oh, yeah. Because that, that's how integral the company was to Seattle. Oh, yeah. And it mean, mass layoffs, Boeing, and that was, it was a one company town at the time. Mm-hmm. Of course, no longer today. So, did they par down resources and, you know, oh, they obviously did. made it through? Yeah, what they did, <laughs> it's pretty interesting. They sort of took a page from their history after World War One which was their first big orders for the military. They weren't making mm-hmm. passenger aircraft during that period. Just, you know, sort of for outdoorsmen, you know, wealthy people who wanted to fly. But, yeah. yeah. There were no airlines really then. Mm-hmm. But uh, when the, the war ended and, and orders came to a standstill, uh, Bill Boeing, the company's founder, who uh, um, who had his, uh, you know, the first manufacturing facility was a former boathouse, uh, and he was making boats prior to making airplanes. He he got them to make boats again, mm-hmm. and oddly, furniture. <laughs> so he's like, when times are tough and I can't make airplanes, I'll make some chairs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He made these flat bottom boats and and furniture and um, gosh. And anyway, after uh, 
after the uh, the recession, Boeing did the same thing and had diversified into all kinds of strange businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, a few of them, however, were uh, technological, and that served the company well in future years, really getting uh, ahead of the eight ball on uh, you know technologies that are common. Today. I guess that's smart because if you think about it, it's kind of what was it the seventies or eighties where we developed a kind of computer technology to eventually yeah. lead to things like autopilot. Seems like most Oh absolutely. Yeah. Most things that I've read from pilots, commercial pilots these days say, you know, I, I fly a plane for eight minutes. It's like four minutes on takeoff, yeah. four minutes at the end. <laughs> right. Which is an inter- interesting discussion to have of uh, when there is a issue these days, it seems like when the autopilot turns off, you often have a pilot that's you know flies yeah. eight, eight minutes a day and maybe doesn't have as much experience as those old Yankee Clippers of the seventies. Oh wow! Yeah, the um, I, I, I'm not a pilot, but I flew one plane in my uh, in my life, and it was a 1929 Balanca, mm-hmm. uh, originally muslin covered. Uh, and this time in some sort of a composite kind of weaved material. Yeah. And it was when I wrote a, I wrote a book. Uh, it was a history of uh, aviation in Hawaii. Oh, yeah. Because you know, aviation really allowed for those disparate islands to become a connected culture. Mm-hmm. You had to you know, take outrigger canoes on pretty wild seas to get from one island to the next. And uh, so it, had limit, it limited their uh, connectedness. Mm-hmm. And uh, Hawaiian Airlines sponsored the, uh, that book. And uh, the CEO at the time, Mark Dunkerley, said, uh, how would you like to go up in our first airplane, this Uh 1929 That must have been cool. It was wild. Um, We were in the plane, and there were some photographers behind us. It was a four-seater. And I'm I'm in the passenger uh, seat, the co-pilot seat, and there's a joystick there. And at one point, Mark turns to me and says... I want, I'm going to snap some photos of my condo. We're going along the shoreline. I want to snap some photos of my condo. Would you fly the plane? Oh, and, man. And I said, I'm, I'm not a pilot. And he says, oh, it's so easy. Push down on the joystick, you go down. Push up, you go up. Push left, you go left. Push right, you go right. Look at the altimeter. Stay at 1,500 feet. We were pretty low. Mm-hmm. And follow the shoreline. <laughs> and instantly... I produced sweat. My back was soaked in sweat, but I flew it. Yeah. And it's bouncing around in the sky. Uh-huh. And you realize turbulence is just par for the course. Yeah. yeah. So it wasn't difficult at all. No, as it turned out, it, I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't uh, land the plane. Yeah. I wouldn't know anything about doing it. Or as even far as when you're up there gliding. But it's... when you're up there, yeah. And it was, it was really great to be. No, no that I don't think there's too many it. people that can say yeah. that I got to fly a plane with yeah. the CEO of Hawaiian Airlines. I know, I know. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Do you uh, have you always? Uh, another reason that we started the podcast was I am scared of flying. Every time I'm on a right. plane, I see some little kid playing with an iPad. Another uh-huh. lady having a good time reading a book, and I'm like gripping the armrest. Have you experienced? What's your experience with flying? Are you someone that? Has ever been nervous about it or not? Absolute dread until that moment that I flew the Blanca. Yeah. It, it ended that moment. I, I guess it's because it, I, I could rationally understand that turbulence was just all, all part of it. Mm-hmm. And that it just kept going. The engine kept going. Yeah. And pushing me forward through the turbulence. And I really, you know, everyone equates it to, it's just like a, a, a sailboat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know they rarely sink. Yeah. It, it ended uh, my fear at that point. But prior to that, oh yeah, white knuckle. Yeah, uh, um, a dread. 
Well, it sounds like I need need to uh, somehow get up in a plane and fly one. <laughs> I guess that's the, it it, it yeah. cured you. Now, when it's turbulence, yeah, and this is going to sound bizarre, but I um, I enjoy it. Like it's like a roller coaster. I smile. Yeah. Woo! Somebody once yeah. recently said to me that kind of put my mind more at ease. They said if they had this big jar in front of them, and they're mm-hmm. like, if I filled this jar up with water and dropped a little figurine in it. Yeah. And it sunk to the bottom. It wouldn't just drop straight to the bottom. It would take a little while to go through the water. He's like, the same thing happens when you're up in the sky. Yeah. People see air. You don't see air. Right. Um, we think of air as being invisible. But this, there's molecular. matter. Yeah. It's, there's stuff here. Yeah, that's right. And yeah. planes are designed to glide on this stuff. Oh, so yeah. even if you're up in the sky at 35,000 feet and your engines go out, you have like an hour to glide and go somewhere. Pretty much. uh, It happens all the time that you have an engine go down, but these planes are designed to glide on the air. It's not that they're going to fall out of the sky like they're in a vacuum. You want to know my worst flying experience? Yes, I do. So my oldest daughter, I'm not going to give you her age, so it was about 30 years ago, let's say, and uh, she was a little girl, and we were flying from Montana to Chicago, and it was a windy it's the windy mm-hmm. city and it was really really windy and the the plane is just buffeted by winds and going in left and right left and right and everyone's nervous and even the, the you know the, the flight attendants are nervous and it it lands and takes off again uh. Because it was the wrong one way. We had literally been blown into the wrong runway. Uh-huh. And there was and another plane or on the runway? Or they were just like, this is... Another plane on the runway. That's oh, why yeah. we, had to, we had to absolutely yeah. take off again. And then the pilot got, got on the loudspeaker as if it was nothing. Folks, sorry, we had to take off again. Landed on all oh, those winds, boy. You yeah. Know, had to, we landed on the wrong runway. There was another plane there. So we're just going to circle... And oh, that was that was the, the way you I just, thought it was a goner. The way you just imitated his voice made me feel yeah. comfortable. Did it? <laughs> because I feel like I feel like the sound of a pilot's voice, yes. somebody in control. Because you're in the back of the plane, you have, you have no choice you can make is going to affect the plane's flight. But having a pilot come right. on when you're everybody's nervous and he has a calm voice and says, "I have this under control." Yeah. Looks like we're going to take off again. We're going to land. That would put me <laughs> at ease. <laughs> it should be a prerequisite for the job, right? Yeah, that you. Yeah. Uh, just have the, a calm quality. It's almost like seeing a doctor that just smiles yeah. and looks you in the matter. eye. Right. You know, he, you have no idea what his medical knowledge is, but if he just makes you feel comfortable and yeah. comes across as somebody that knows what they're doing. And- hey, one, one qu- uh, quick story I wanted to tell you is um, because you had asked about, uh, you know, we were talking about uh, flying fears, fear of flying. <laughs> yeah. And um so when the 707, that was that swept wing jet I had mentioned earlier, the first uh, in history, when it made its uh, debut to the public at Seattle's uh, annual Seafair show on Lake Washington, it's a big, really big uh, air show that's mm-hmm. put on, um, the uh, president of the company at the time, Bill Allen, uh, selected his top test pilot, Tex Johnston, who wore cowboy boots, uh, you know, Texan quiet, taciturn Texan to uh, fly the plane. And it was the... Um, it was the, you know, the, the uh, what do you call it? The finale mm-hmm. of, of the show. Everybody's waiting for the 747. They've never seen, the public has never seen a swept back wing jet. Mm-hmm. And so Tex Johnson, he's a test pilot, mind you. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's, you could see it in the distance. He's, he's coming. I had a house on Lake Washington. So I re- we used to watch the air show every year. And he's coming uh, west across the, uh, the water there. And he does a barrel roll 
Now, this is a jet. Uh-huh. And he does a barrel roll, which is something you do in a small plane. And Bill Allen, who had a heart condition, uh, uh, I don't know if it's apocryphal, but he, he popped a, a heart pill oh my God. at that point. And he called Johnston in his office and said, what the hell did you think you were doing there? And he said, well, it didn't crash, did it? <laughs> and uh, anyway, that had the effect uh, or marketing effect of uh, uh, introducing the public to the safety of a, a swept wing uh, jet. Yeah, made yeah. them feel comfortable. It did. It really did. It's like did. if it can withstand a barrel, yeah, a roll, barrel then roll, we can fly you to Chicago. Absolutely. There you go. <laughs> uh, one last question I was sure. going to ask you is just uh, your routine for flying. Do you prefer uh, sitting in the front of a plane, back of a plane, aisle seat, window seat? Do you have any kind of routine that you go through when you are flying, or is it different every time? Yeah, well, like everyone, I wish I could fly first class, but unless someone's paying for it, I'm not going to. So, no, I, I try to get as close to the, you know, the, the exit as possible, just because I hate waiting. Yeah. Uh, always have an aisle seat, because uh, as I get older, we develop certain um, bathroom-related issues yeah. uh, having to do with frequency. Ah. Um, so I find that's, uh, I don't want, you know, to annoy my, my fellow passengers. You're a considerate flight I mate. I, I, I really am. Oh, and, and the one thing I like to do on an airplane is uh, either edit or read. Uh, I find it just, you know, it passes the time. I can't write on an airplane, but uh, I love to just sort of sit there and fiddle around with my words and, uh, yeah, or, you know, read a book. And before I know it, it's over. Sounds good. Well, it's all adding up to you being a intelligent, articulate man. Thanks for joining us today. I loved it. Thank you, Michael. Again, that was Russ Bannum, author of Hire, 100 Years of Boeing. Be sure to check out that book. I just want to say thanks again to Russ. He has a great radio voice, was an engaging storyteller. We're very lucky to have him on the podcast. Before we get into Northeast Airlines Flight 823, I thought we could do a brief recap on the Boeing MAX 8 situation. Our last podcast was three months ago, and there have been a few developments in the story. In October 2018, Lion Air Flight 610 went down shortly after takeoff in Indonesia due to what is suspected to be an issue with a new anti-stalling program that is on all the new Boeing MAX planes. On March 10th, 2019, another Boeing MAX 8 plane went down shortly after takeoff in Ethiopia, Ethiopian Airlines Flight 302. Only 350 MAX 8 planes were in service around the world in late 2018, early 2019, and two of these 350 planes crashed under very similar circumstances. After the second crash in March, almost the entire world, with the exception of the United States and Canada, decided to ground the Boeing MAX 8 planes. At the time of our last episode... Canada and the United States were still flying these planes. Boeing was still assuring everyone that these planes were safe to fly, and it was rumored that the CEO of Boeing contacted President Trump to tell him to hold off on grounding the planes in the U.S. Then investigators at the crash site in Ethiopia discovered a jack screw. Now, this jack screw was used to control the pitch angle of the stabilizer of the plane. The jack screw that they found indicated that the plane was in the full nose-down position. After looking at the flight control and satellite data and discovering the evidence of this new jack screw, investigators saw a clear connection between the Lion Air and Ethiopian Airlines accidents. Once they learned that the two crashes were both likely caused by this new anti-stalling system, MCAS, the United States and Canada grounded all Boeing MAX 8 planes as well. So... 
Boeing Max 8 planes are not being flown with passengers on them anywhere in the world. We also found out a bit more information about the Lion Air flight from October 2018. In the penultimate flight, the flight from Bali to Jakarta, the flight before Flight 610, an off-duty pilot sitting in the jump seat of the cockpit aided the pilots flying the plane when they had an issue with the anti-stalling system. Unfortunately, after landing safely in Jakarta, the flight crew failed to strongly communicate the issue to the next flight crew, the flight crew of Flight 610. It was reported that the pilots of Flight 610 were searching through a flight manual, trying to figure out what the issue was as their plane kept shifting in altitude shortly after takeoff. Seems like a pretty clear indication that they didn't know what was going on. May not have been completely up to date on the new anti-stalling program on these new Max 8 planes, or how to kill the system if they had an issue with it. Lastly, Russ referenced this in our conversation earlier. A report in the New York Times came out that detailed a selling strategy by Boeing for two different safety features in the cockpit for their new Max 8 planes. Boeing sold these safety features as upgrades. One feature displayed the reading on the angle of attack sensors, and the other was a disagree warning, which would light up if the two angle of attack sensors on the plane were getting different readings. These two safety features did not come standard on the plane. They were sold as upgrades, meaning airlines had to request these and pay extra for them. Striking everyone is a bit absurd. It seems like if an airline wants an extra bathroom or special lighting in the cabin, or maybe plush and comfortable seats for their passengers, those seem kind of like luxury items that wouldn't be exactly weird to sell as upgrades. But giving pilots information to fly a plane safely probably shouldn't be sold as an upgrade. In light of the issues with their anti-stalling system, which uses information from these angle of attack sensors, Boeing has stated that these two safety features will now be standard on all future MAX 8 planes. They will no longer be selling them as upgrades. Apparently, vital cockpit information is now on the house. So at the present day in June 2019, all Boeing MAX 8 planes are grounded worldwide. No one is flying them. Airlines are canceling flights due to the partial grounding of their fleets. Boeing is working on a software update that they claim will resolve any issues with the MAX 8 planes. Boeing hasn't received an order for a commercial plane for two straight months. They received no orders in April or May of 2019, and a lot of their previous orders for their MAX 8 planes are currently on hold. I guess no one's eager to receive a plane that they can't currently fly and make some money off of. So... It's an unfortunate situation for our American aviation company, but as we've learned with Russ, they've been through tough times in the past. This is a tough time in the present, and I'm hoping they've learned some serious lessons from this era about how a plane should be developed and how it should be certified, and I hope they make better choices in the future. That's all you can really do when you make a mistake in life is learn and then make better choices in the future. At this time, I'd like to introduce to you all the producer of the Plane Crash podcast that for this episode has decided to step from behind the scenes and in front of the microphone. I'd like to welcome Tess Andrade to the podcast. How are you doing, Tess? Hi, I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Thanks for being bold and joining <laughs> us in front of the microphone. What is your relationship to flying? Do you recall... Um, your first flight, did you fly as a child? I did fly as a child, and I 
don't think I was nervous about it then, but I have become a more nervous flyer in my old age. Oh, yeah. When you do feel nervous, what are the things, what are the thoughts in, that are going through your head? Thoughts are, I could die at any moment. Uh, <laughs> that's the main... That's my uh, main <laughs> thought as well. I'm often jealous of those kids that can just chill and read a book. Yeah. When you were a kid, where did you fly to? I flew... Uh, to a lot of different places. We went to Europe quite a bit because my father is Portuguese. So those are long flights over the ocean. Yes, very long. Yeah, a lot of you're just a kid. It, it says, says something about how when you're a kid, you just are fearless and you don't know what can hurt you. And you'll hop in a plane and it's not a big deal. But when you become an adult after life experiences, you suddenly have these rising anxieties and your brain goes to places where it didn't go when you were a kid. Yeah, I actually think that my fear of flying started when I went on this school trip to Greece and there was someone else, a friend of mine on the flight who was terrified of flying. And it hadn't occurred to me until I saw her be scared that it was a scary thing. And after that, I became more nervous. Yeah, makes modeled me modeled her behavior. <laughs> she was scared, you sub- subsequently became scared, and you've been scared ever since. since. Yeah. So, it would be nice if we could unlearn being scared, and that's kind of what we're trying to do here exactly. in the podcast is we have been uh for one reason or another we're scared currently. We are trying to unlearn that fear mechanism. And hopefully by learning more about planes and, you know, being exposed to these things, we realize what you know little chance the low odds of plane crashes and we become appreciative of how all these plane crashes added up to us you know developing a knowledge base and you know making traveling in a plane safer yeah have you found that you are a braver flyer since you've started doing this podcast yeah oh well to be completely honest went to jamaica uh last month Oh, wow. That must be why you weren't (laughs) podcasting. And uh, we flew on four different flights. And I've never been more comfortable as an adult than these last four flights. We flew from Orlando. We flew from LAX to Orlando in a Boeing 757. And when we took off, I just felt like I looked out the window and saw the flaps going up at around seven, 8,000 feet. And just, I think that ha- having more knowledge of how a plane flies in the sky has made my anxieties go away a little more. It so demystified we're almost the whole getting thing. to uh, mission accomplished territory. Huh. Well, at the top of every podcast in this particular episode, it's the middle of the podcast. I like to point out that I'm not an expert in aeronautical engineering. I'm not even a pilot. I'm just somebody that finds plane incidents and the details surrounding why they happened, how they happened to be of interest. The truth is I've always been pretty afraid of flying, and it's my hope that the more I learn about flight and the more I'm exposed to this thing I fear, that over time I'll learn to be more comfortable with getting on a plane and my anxieties will go down. I hope that in no way we come across as being insensitive to anyone that's ever been affected by these tragedies. We just consider plane accidents to be historical events. And we'd like to discuss the details and how each incident has shaped air travel, helped make it safer for us all to fly in the future. So I'm going to get started um, talking about Northeast Flight 823 right now. Feel free to interject with any thoughts you might have, Tess. Thank you very much. 
Before we get into the details concerning this particular flight, I'd like to tell a little backstory of the airline and the business environment that Northeast Airlines finds themselves in in the mid-1950s. Northeast Airlines was founded in 1931. Amelia Earhart was one of the airline's founders, along with Eugene Vidal, father of the popular author Gore Vidal. The airline was a small, regional airline servicing a handful of cities in the New England area, flying out of places like Boston and Bangor, Maine, and Montreal. They only owned a few planes, and the planes they did own were not large. They were planes that carried 20 passengers at a time. Additionally, because they only serviced New England, the business was seasonal. In New England, it's cold and snowy much of the year. There's bad weather in the wintertime, and you can't fly planes when there's bad weather. There simply isn't a high demand to travel in New England during the winter months, because not that many New Englanders are itching to fly from one cold New England town to another cold New England town in January. Also, because Northeast only serviced small routes in New England, the airline experienced a lot of competition with other modes of transportation. Trains, buses, and car travel were all other options for travelers in New England looking to go somewhere else in New England. If you are an airline that services, say, New York to St. Louis, that's a pretty great distance to travel. You're not going to have to deal with a huge amount of competition from buses and trains. Most people that need to get from New York to St. Louis are going to fly on a plane if they have to travel that far. In New England, there were a lot of other options other than flying if you wanted to get from Boston to Bangor. So given all these conditions, Northeast Airlines in the early 1950s isn't making all that much money. They're a small airline. One of the reasons that the airline could afford to stay afloat is that every year they were given a $2 million subsidy from the government to continue to exist. In the early 1950s, the FAA, or Federal Aviation Administration as we know it today, did not exist. The FAA wasn't created until Congress passed the Federal Aviation Act of 1958. So prior to 1958, the regulatory government body that oversees the airline industry was known as the CAB, or Civil Aeronautics Board. The Civil Aeronautics Board had many functions, and one of those was to regulate which airlines were going to fly which routes. If you wanted to fly a commercial plane from one city to another, you had to undergo a long process and obtain approval from the CAB to do so. In the mid-50s, the most popular air travel route in the U.S. was the New York to Miami, Florida route. Mm, makes sense. In those cold winter months, yeah. In those cold winter months, everyone in New York and New England sought refuge in Florida to get a break from freezing temperatures and soak in some sun. In the mid-50s, up to 1 million passengers a year would fly from New York to Miami. So what does this mean if you're an airline and you're flying planes from New York to Miami? It means you're making some sweet, sweet money. Mm, nice, that cheddar. A hefty chunk of do-re-mi. So in the mid-1950s, only two airlines, um, Eastern Airlines and National Airlines, have the approval to fly this route. The CAB announces that because this route is in such great demand, they're going to approve a third airline to fly this route, known at the time as the Golden Route. So many airlines compete to apply for approval. Pan Am at the time was the largest, most powerful airline in the world, and they were fighting um, for the route along with Delta and eight other airlines. 
On August 10th, 1956, the CAB decides to approve a third airline to fly this golden route from New York to Miami, and that airline was Northeast Airlines. This tiny New England airline gets approved to fly the most popular route in the United States. Obviously, this is a huge deal to Northeast. Corks fly off the champagne bottles, the airline is poised to double in size, they suddenly have the most profitable route an airline can fly. Other airlines are pissed. They take the CAB to court and say, this Northeast Airlines is too small, they don't have the large planes or knowledgeable pilots to fly this route, we're Pan Am, give it to us. But the CAB wants to make Northeast profitable. Why? Because they're a government agency, and the government is sick of giving Northeast $2 million a year to keep them in business. They say, hey, how about we give these guys that are costing us a cool $2 million a year a way to make some sweet moolah so we don't have to give them any more money. So the courts uphold the CAB's decision, and Northeast Airlines is given the green light to fly from New York to Miami in December 1956. So back to the mindset of Northeast. Everyone in the company is thrilled in late 1956. Stock prices for the company are through the roof. It looks as though Northeast Airlines is going to become a major player in the airline industry. Except there's an initial problem the company has to tackle. First, they only have small planes. In 1956, they had a fleet of 17 planes. Twelve of them were Douglas DC-3 planes, twin-engine planes that could carry 21 passengers at a time. And they had five Convair 240s also twin-engine or two-engine planes that could carry 40 passengers at a time. Now, flying the New York to Miami route, you need a larger plane that can accommodate more passengers so you can make more money, and a plane with four engines that will have greater range that can make the trip without refueling. Northeast finally gets the go-ahead in December 1956 to start flying this route, and the company president, George Gardner, decides he wants the company to start making money right away. It's December. If they can start flying immediately, they still have a few months of winter where, they can, where there's this high demand to get from New York to Florida and have a beach vacation. In late 1956, Northeast buys a large four-engine plane, a Douglas DC-6B, that can fly around 90 passengers. They have more four-engine planes on order, but only the single plane at the time uh, to fly this profitable route. So they need more planes, and they discover that an airline named Flying Tiger has a converted cargo plane, a four-engine Douglas DC-6A available for lease. Flying Tiger Airlines used the plane, which was built in 1955, to fly military men and their families from New York to an American military base in Germany and back. The problem is the DC-6A was originally a cargo plane wasn't made for commercial passenger air travel. The inside of the plane didn't look all dolled up and classy like your typical passenger plane of the time. So there's this internal discussion at Northeast Airlines where they ask each other, should we use this plane? This is the first impression we're going to make on potential lifelong customers, people that have never flown with us before, and their first experience with us is going to be flying on a converted cargo plane. We're supposed to be upgrading as a company. Now we're on this big stage. This is our introduction to people, and we're going to roll them out on a flight on a plane-looking converted cargo plane. But the president of the airline overruled any internal objections after he crunched some numbers and found out that the company could make $270,000 a month. They just bit their lip 
and lease this converted cargo plane. So Northeast agrees to lease the plane from Flying Tiger for $112,500 a month. Flying Tiger agrees to do maintenance and repairs for the plane, covers insurance costs, and delivers the plane to Northeast on January 1st, 1957. Now, Northeast has two planes to fly this golden route, but they have another problem. None of their pilots have been trained on these new four-engine planes. So they send seven of their most senior pilots out to Denver to train at the United Airlines Flight Training Center so they can fly these Douglas DC-6s. So all seven of them plan on, that they plan on using for their new golden route are basically novices when it comes to flying the DC-6. They don't have a ton of experience flying this particular plane, but the company insists on using their existing employees rather than hiring other pilots that might have had years of experience flying this particular model of plane. So now that we're caught up on the history of the airline and the environment that it found itself in early 1957, we can discuss Northeast Airlines Flight 823. Northeast Airlines Flight 823 was a scheduled flight on February 1st, 1957 from New York's LaGuardia Airport to Miami International. Scheduled departure at 2.45 p.m. There were 95 passengers, six crew members for a total of 101 people on board. The plane was a Douglas DC-6A, the converted cargo plane leased from Flying Tiger Airlines. The Douglas DC-6 was a huge innovation for the aviation industry in 1947. It contained the first pressurized cabin for commercial travel, allowing the plane to fly above 10,000 feet, which let the plane go faster on less fuel and doubled the capacity and speed of the pre-World War II planes that airlines were using. There were two pilots and one one flight engineer for this flight. The captain, Al Marsh, was a 49-year-old, trained for flying at the Army Flight School, had 28 years of experience, and joined Northeast in 1938. He recently moved to Miami with his family after Northeast was awarded the New York to Miami route. He was known as a seasoned professional, trained pilots for Northeast, but he had two crashes on his record. Two? That's a lot. Yeah, but he had two crashes like on his record. zero crashes on the record. <laughs> Don't we all? Don't we all? He had two crashes on his record, both coincidentally at LaGuardia. In January 1952, he was training a co-pilot, letting someone else fly, but overseeing a Boston to LaGuardia flight as a supervisor of sorts. When under his supervision, the plane landed short of the runway due to visibility issues and sank in Flushing Bay. Everyone survived, but five passengers were seriously injured. In February 1953, a little over a year later, Al was captain of another flight from Boston to LaGuardia when 100 feet from the ground, a propeller on the engine reversed, causing the plane to turn, and Marsh crashed, landed the plane on runway 13. No injuries occurred on that flight. After having two crashes on his record, he was psychologically evaluated and was given a clean bill of mental health. He was fourth in seniority at Northeast, had already made 10 trips along this New York to Miami route, had 65 flying hours in the DC-6A, 18,000 flying hours total experience. His co-pilot was Basil Dixwell, a 40-year-old with 15 years of flight experience. Dixwell was training to be a captain for the DC-6. He had flown a few times from New York to Miami as an observer. This was his first flight on the DC-6 as a co-pilot. He had 65 hours of training on the DC-6. The flight engineer was Angelo Andon, a 33-year-old former mechanic, two weeks out of flight school. 
He was selected to train as a flight engineer once Northeast was awarded the Golden Brute. He made six round trips from New York to Miami and had 60 hours of flight experience. This particular flight crew had flown from Miami to New York earlier that morning. In Miami, the plane had been grounded because of an issue with one of the propellers, which was over-revving, which was perceived to be kind of a minimal issue. In Miami, the ground crew said they didn't have the part to fix the engine, but they'd have that part in New York, so the plane is allowed to fly, and the crew keeps an eye on the engine, compensating for the over-revving propeller. The crew arrives in New York at 1 p.m., and the two pilots, Marsh and Dix, will go have lunch at Kitty Hawk Restaurant inside the airport while Ann Don, the flight engineer, prepares the flight back to Miami. Around 2 p.m. in New York, the weather turns bad, but it's not horrible. It's snowy out, visibility's low, flying conditions are less than ideal, but the weather is still above the legal guidelines to fly. It's a judgment call for captains of different flights at this point. Some captains are canceling flights, and some are still going ahead with their scheduled departures. The maintenance crew tells the captain, Al Marsh, that they still don't have the parts to fix that over-revving propeller situation. But again, it's seen as a minor issue, just something to keep an eye on and make adjustments accordingly. Al Marsh decides he wants to fly, so ground crews are brushing snow off the wings of the plane, and at 2.40, passengers start boarding the plane. The plane's completely full because a large number of other flights are being canceled that day. And there's also a lot of Northeast Airlines employees that they get to fly for free. They're taking advantage of that perk heading to Florida for an escape from winter. The plane had a weight of 95,952 pounds, only 2,200 pounds under the maximum allowable weight. After a long delay due to the snow snow removal, they decided to taxi the plane to an airport hangar because whenever the ground crew would get snow off one dusted wing, the other wing that they had just brushed off would have new snow on it. So they decided to move this plane to a hangar so they can get all the snow off the plane, then the plane can just taxi straight to the runway and take off. Passengers start getting frustrated and nervous by the three-hour delay, so stewardesses decide to give out sandwiches for free. After another brief delay exiting the hangar because of snow buildup on the ground, the plane starts taxiing toward the runway. The co-pilot Dixwell says, LaGuardia Ground Control, Northeast Flight 823, taxiing out from Butler, IFR, Miami. Dixwell is seeking clearance for takeoff. Airport Ground Control radios over Northeast 10, proceed via taxiway 2, hold short of runway 4, over. After a few minutes, the plane is taxied over to runway 4, and they're initially cleared for takeoff, but they're late to react to that clearance, so ground control holds them up so two planes can land on runway 4. The two planes land, and then ground control radios over Northeast 823 cleared for takeoff runway 4. So finally, at 6.01 p.m. on February 1st, 1957, Northeast Airlines Flight 823 blasts down the runway of LaGuardia Airport, and lifts off the ground about two-thirds of the way down the runway. Ground control at LaGuardia sees the plane take off and radios Northeast 823, contact departure 120.4, which was a radio frequency for communication. The co-pilot Dixwell responds 823, and this was the last communication with the plane. Shortly after takeoff, the plane enters cloud cover and loses visibility. The captain, Al Marsh, is flying by his instruments now, and the plane's rate of climb is 800 feet per minute. 
Almarsh retracts the flaps on the wings and slightly reduces engine power, which was normal procedure for takeoff. The co-pilot Dixwell looks at the flight engineer Andon as he reduces power to the engines, as the captain ordered. The captain, Marsh, is fixated on his instrument panel, and Dixwell changes his gaze from Andon to looking out the window. He exclaims, Al, ground! To his surprise, Captain Al Marsh sees the tops of trees through the cockpit window. He notices the plane is banking left and pulls the control column to the right, leveling the angle of impact for the plane. The plane clips the tops of trees and crash lands, skidding 1,500 feet from the initial point of impact, eventually coming to rest in a snowy, muddy vegetable patch. Both wings catch fire from the destroyed engines, and the entire fuselage is pitch black because the electrical system goes out. The plane was lucky in the sense that if the plane had crashed 100 yards further, they would have crashed into the prison on Rikers Island. If they had crashed a half a mile in any direction, they would have been in icy waters of the bay. Initially, all 101 men, women, and children on the plane are alive when the plane comes to rest, but the plane immediately catches fire and the fuel spilling out of the wings is blasting like a flamethrower to the back of the plane. The Captain Almarsh turns back to see the cabin filling with black smoke and decides the best thing he can do is get off the plane and try to open the emergency exits from the outside. He screams to his co-pilot and flight engineer, let's get out of here, and all three slide out a cockpit window jumping five feet to the ground. So now 98 passengers are still stuck on the plane, and the crash was actually so gentle that the emergency lighting wasn't even triggered. The captain, the cabin is completely dark, filling up with black smoke from the 3,000 gallons of fuel that the plane was carrying. Passengers start trying to get out of the plane by any means necessary because the back of the plane is on fire. A few passengers find windows of the plane that were broken, and then they jump out the window. Others find a hole in the front of the plane between the floor and the wall and manage to squeeze through that hole, even if it meant getting a deep gash from a jagged piece of metal that was exposed in the hole. It's mass confusion at this point. No one can see anything. One lady falls down in the aisle and is immediately stepped on by passengers that are stumbling around in the dark looking for an exit. Eventually, this lady, a passenger named Blanche Zukowski, stands up and immediately falls over because she inhales a bunch of smoke. She's barely lucid at this point and crawls to a hole in the plane where she scents cold air and another passenger from the outside of the plane pulls her out. Another man told the story of lowering his child toward the hole in the front of the plane on the left side when another male passenger pushed the child out of the way and dove through the exit himself. It's just chaos. I mean, I don't think you can blame anything, anybody for anything at this point. The place is on fire and everyone's just trying to get out of the plane. You might want to blame that guy for pushing the child just a little bit. Everybody's just reacting on instinct. They're just looking for any kind of way out. There's no thought happening. Upon impact, the left side of the plane was deformed and rendered all emergency exits on the left side unavailable because the doors were pinched in by the metal walls of the plane bending. Only one door in the entire passenger cabin was able to be opened on the right side of the plane over the wing, Many passengers had to exit the plane by jumping onto a burning wing of the plane and then rolling in the snow. It was the only way out. Some passengers got to the door over the right wing, looked down, saw that the only option was to jump onto a burning wing of the plane and refused to jump. But since this was the only way out, other passengers from behind would just push them out of the plane. 
The captain, Al Marsh, exited the cockpit window and ran to the left side of the plane and helped passengers streaming out the hole in the floor. The co-pilot, Dixwell, went to the right side of the plane and helped passengers that were jumping through the one door available over the right wing. So now, the plane had crashed onto Rikers Island right next to a prison. That night, a man named James Harrison was the deputy warden in charge of the prison, and he was planning on using 69 prison inmates to shovel snow from the sidewalks outside the prison because of the snowstorm. Harrison had to make a split-second decision. Should he let these prison inmates outside the prison to assist in the rescue effort and risk these prisoners trying to escape? If any of these prisoners run off, this will come back on him. He has to make an immediate decision, and ultimately he decides it's worth a risk, and he orders all the prison's floodlights to be turned on. Soon, inmates from Rikers Island Prison are running up to the crash site. One prisoner helped assist passengers escaping through the hole in the floor on the left side of the plane, and the rest of the inmates are corralling all the injured that are staggering around the crash site with severe burns. The inmates guided the injured toward the Protestant Mission House on the island that was quickly set up as a makeshift hospital. The prisoners helped survivors dress wounds and applied Vaseline to burn victims. They basically transformed from prisoners into a rescue crew in a blink of an eye. One story from this accident includes a family of four with a six-week-old baby named Mark. The father threw the baby from the burning plane and couldn't find him after exiting the plane. The father was heavily burned and was whisked away to the makeshift hospital by the rescue team. An inmate discovered the baby named Mark Cronin. After stepping on him in the snow and carried him back to the prison, Mark was recently interviewed and asked about the incident, and he said the inmate saved his life, no question about it. I probably would have died if he hadn't found me. No one knows who the inmate was that saved Mark, but when asked what he'd say to the inmate if he, if he had the chance, Mark replied, I can't express how grateful I am. He gave me a beautiful, beautiful life. Aww. So the plane was completely incinerated two minutes after crashing. Passengers only had 120 seconds to get off the plane, either through a small hole in the floor at the front of the plane, crawling through a broken window, or through the right exit door over the burning right wing of the plane. In total, 81 people survived the crash of Northeast Airlines Flight 823. 20 people died, most of them seated at the back of the plane. The back of the plane was the area that was hit with fire immediately after impact. By 11.30 p.m. that night, all survivors had been ferried over from Rikers Island to the mainland of Manhattan and the Bronx. At 1 a.m., all prisoners returned to their cells, and a final count was done for the night that showed that none of the prisoners had tried to escape. Each prisoner was accounted for. As any plane crash would, this accident generated a lot of media attention. Um, Walter Cronkite from CBS rushed to the scene to interview survivors that were being ferried over to Manhattan. Cronkite asked one survivor named Mason Benson, why were you heading to Florida? Mason had suffered severe burns to his face, hands, and arms, and Mason replied, to get a burn. <laughs> Even in that dark moment, he still had a sense of humor. The night of the crash, Al Marsh, Basil Dixwell, and Angelo Andon, the three men in the cockpit, were interviewed by the CAB, or Civil Aeronautics Board, investigators about the flight. And all three men told a similar story of paying strong attention to their instruments during takeoff. None of the three felt that they had had any engine trouble or plane issues. Captain Almarsh said he had the perception that the plane was going straight and climbing, had no indication the plane was turning to the left and going down until the last second when Dixwell screamed, I'll ground. 
and he could visually see the snowy ground and the trees of Rikers Island. The captain, Almarsh, said he was shocked to learn that he crashed on Rikers Island. He thought he must have crashed in the Bronx, because the Bronx was straight ahead from the runway that he took off from, and he had no in- indication that the plane had turned. Hmm. An investigation afterwards by the CAB showed that the plane left the runway, climbed in altitude, and went straight for 20 seconds. Then it went into a left turn, veering 119 degrees, flying another 12 seconds after veering off course and then crashing on Rikers Island, initially clipping the top of some small trees. The far left propeller, propeller one, struck the ground first, followed by the tip of the left wing, then propeller two on the left wing, then the back tail of the plane hit the ground, followed by two propellers on the right side of the aircraft. Extensive test flights were flown to try and duplicate the flight path of A23, but investigators struggled to put together an explanation where they could have termed it as sharply as they did without the pilots or passengers sensing the turn, which no one claimed to have felt. All the wreckage and instrumentation were sent to labs for analysis, and the plane seemed to the investigators to be in perfect working condition. After looking over an exhaustive list of possible causes for the crash, They still failed to come up with an answer to explain why the plane turned and descended and the pilots and passengers never felt it. They stumbled upon records from Flying Tiger Airlines and discovered that when Flying Tiger subleased the plane to Northeast Airlines, they told them the empty operating weight for the plane was 61,527 pounds. But the weight that Flying Tiger had communicated was for a cargo plane, not a passenger plane. Passenger planes generally add weight allowance for crew and the crew's bags and food and oil, which amounts to an additional 2,000 pounds. So the numbers Northeast had been crunching for the last three weeks when flying this plane to determine the plane's weight before takeoff were always 2,000 pounds under what they truly were. Adding this 2,000 to the flight's weight still put it at 265 pounds under the maximum limit for the flight. So it was as heavy as a plane could possibly be but was still underweight, and theoretically, the weight shouldn't have caused the crash. Public hearings were held where experts and airline employees, the pilots Marsh and Dixwell, the flight engineer Andon, the investigators were all questioned about the details of the flight, and eventually the CAB put out its official report. The official report stated that the plane was airborne for 31 seconds. It traveled 6,000 feet. It turning 119 degrees to the left. All all instrumentation for the plane was operating correctly. The plane's engines, airframe, electricity all worked properly. The probable cause for the crash was pilot error. The captain failed to properly observe and interpret his flight instruments and maintain control of his aircraft. So the final verdict was the captain lost his spatial awareness once the plane entered the clouds. He looked at his instruments but failed to correctly interpret what they were telling him, and thus the plane went off course to the left and crashed. This finding has been hotly debated amongst pilots. Pilots argue that the CAB couldn't find a solid reason that the plane crashed the way that it did, so it just decided to blame the pilot because that was an easy explanation. No passenger, none of the crew attested to feeling that the plane was turning. So the CAB says the plane crashed because of pilot air. Pilots say that they were watching their instruments and never felt the plane turning. So there was no universal consensus on what happened, but there were a lot of odd issues with this flight that are kind of worthy of attention. The captain, 
had crashed two planes before, but was still flying and was new at flying four engine planes like the DC 6A. The plane was as heavy as it could possibly be, barely 200 pounds under the maximum allowable weight, and they just spent three hours trying to brush snow off the wings. There was so much snow on the ground that they had trouble getting the plane out of the airport hangar. One would think that between the hangar and taking off that maybe some more snow had accumulated on the plane's wings, and that could have added some more weight. Captain Almarsh didn't know that the plane was 2,000 pounds heavier than it was. Maybe if he had known that, he would have flown differently. Maybe leaving the flaps down a little longer, let the engines run at full power a little longer to compensate for this extra weight. Maybe he would have canceled the flight altogether if he knew the plane was 200 pounds away from maximum capacity, given the snowfall and extra weight that that would add to the wings and plane. Mm. Another thing to think about is the weather was also a factor to be considered. Visibility was low. The weather was awful. The flight was delayed three hours. And many other captains had, you know, canceled their flights. Lastly, Northeast was in a rush to make money and decided to sublease a cargo plane that was shabbily converted into a passenger plane. Then they didn't have the pilots certified to fly four engine planes and quickly rushed them through flight training. So in the end, a very heavy plane took off in snowy weather with a pilot that had a history of crashes, incorrect information about the plane's weight, and he was relatively inexperienced at flying this four-engine plane that had earlier in the day reported issues with one of its engines. Seems like maybe all that added up to this plane crashing on Rikers Island. Any thoughts, Tess? Um, yeah, a few thoughts. I... I'm wondering if they were watching their instruments and their instruments were telling them that they were descending, wouldn't they wouldn't they know that they were crashing? I would or, assume were they... they were looking at other um, instruments, maybe looking at their horizon or, you know, um, looking at something other than the altimeter. And they just weren't aware that they were going down. Yeah. It seems like it took so quick. It, it happened so quick. The events, right. the flight was 31 seconds long. Apparently for 20 seconds, they say that they were going straight and ascending. It was only in the last 12 seconds that it went to the side, went to the left and crashed. So I would think that the obvious thing to me is the weight. Like they mm -hmm. were unaware of how much weight was actually on the plane because they didn't have that extra 2,000. Uh, there's snow. There's snow to the point that they can't clear off one wing and then get to the other wing and then take off. They have to go to a hangar to, to get out of the snow so they can get it all off at one time. you got to think if it from the hangar to the runway, more snow occurred. So if they're right. only 200 pounds away from the maximum allowable weight and they still have to taxi from this hangar to the runway before they take off, that more snow accumulated on the wings and probably added to the weight. So it seems to me like the biggest thing is probably just the weight. The weight, It was yeah. a super heavy plane, barely below the limit, and it's snowy out. It's bad weather. So. It also feels like the most unusual aspect of the story, besides the inmates coming to everyone's rescue, is the captain having a record of two crashes. That doesn't seem very Yeah, I would say reassuring. cut him a little bit of slack because True. he's from a different era where there's no autopilot. I mean, every moment. The guy had 18,000 
you know, flying hours. And, you know, maybe it's just a different era. I think in one of the, one of the crashes too, where, uh, he crash landed on the runway. I think it was his second crash that a lot of people were like, Oh, he saved lives. Like right as he was about to, he was a hundred feet away from the ground and one of his propellers like reversed and he just crashed down and no one was hurt. Mm. And he dealt with like some mechanical issue last minute. And that could have gone really poorly, but as an experienced guy, he's like, Oh, I'm just put this down. Even in this crash, I think some people have said last minute he sees the trees and he crash landed a plane on Rikers Island, did it so gently that the electric, uh, the emergency lights didn't even click on. So he saw that the plane was turning, saw the horizon, saw the trees, and pulled to the right and leveled things out. Mm. So, you know, it's easy to pile it on people, but I kind of feel like maybe maybe he he's responsible somewhat for 80 people surviving, you know, at the same time, maybe he could have chose a different path. A lot of captains that night said, you know what? The weather's bad. I'm not going to fly tonight. Let's cancel the flight. You know, I didn't know that that was a, a captain. There was kind of dealer's choice when it came to, uh, flying and weather or not. Maybe in, you know, 1957, there were different, circumstances it seems like they definitely had parameters they said that it was legal to fly like it was uh you know visibility wasn't awful the weather wasn't horrible plenty of other planes took off that day successfully in the same weather Hmm. plenty of planes landed in that weather they had to wait for two planes to land on that runway before they could take off so i think it's just like to me i would say it's an adding up of everything which is this guy's flying a plane he's not that familiar with. He does have on his record a couple crashes. It's horrible weather. Plane's heavier than he thinks. You know. Another thing that uh, I think you brought it up, one of the most interesting threads to this story is the prison inmates. Yeah. That there's a amazing. guy that's alive right now. There's plenty of people that are alive because these prison inmates put themselves in danger instantaneously. You know, Did the plane... any of them have their sentences commuted or anything? Yeah, like we're, we'll get to that in a second. But uh, I thought, you know, these people, I think we have the stigma towards prisoners that we think of them as, oh, you did something wrong. You know, you deserve to be in prison. You're bad. You're different than me. I'm good. You're bad. And in two seconds, these people went from those bad people in a prison to, to running us. up to a plane that was on fire. How did they not know? They probably didn't know. I, I personally, if I saw a plane that was on fire, I'd be like, that could explode at any minute. I see somebody that needs help out of that hole, but this plane's full of gasoline. If I run up there, maybe it'll explode. Those people didn't have those thoughts. They just ran up and pulled people out of yeah, the holes and they totally helped gather selfless. all these people. And also they're outside the jail. They could have taken that time to be like, sweet, there's this huge distraction. How about I, now's the time to make a break for it. I can just blend in and get out of here. End of the night, they all stayed and they all were accounted for. And I think it says something about humanity that a lot of the people in prison today in 2019 are good human beings and we have so much unrealized potential in our society that if um, we treated people you know better we could get more out of them as a society we could be more productive as a society i'm sure there's plenty of people in prison right now that don't belong in prison that can contribute to society positively 
So, um, Captain Al Marsh went on to work for Northeast at a desk job. He gave up flying planes. Dixwell became a captain flying DC-6s, and Andon continued on as a flight engineer. Thir- Here's We're getting to the point you um, were interested in earlier. 30 inmates were released from Riker's prison in thanks to their rescue <gasps> efforts. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. 27 received reduced sentences, and Deputy Warden James Harrison was awarded the Department of Correction Medal of Honor. Northeast Airlines continued to fly from New York to Miami throughout the late 60s with their fleet of Douglas 6Bs. The airline grew modestly through servicing Florida and eventually added another route from Miami to Los Angeles before eventually merging with Delta Airlines in 1972. So that is the story of Northeast Flight 823. Anything else you would like to add, Tess? Feels like this is... uh... Probably the most feel-good story you've done yet. Yeah. I think this story in particular is kind of a model for what I was originally wanting to do with the podcast. I wanted it to be a history podcast. I wanted to kind of like give a little history lesson about something that happened in the past. I don't think we were really anticipating all the Max 8 current stuff. Drama. Yeah, it kind of makes you feel more like a journalist. I like kind of the history aspect of it. But I like, uh, I like the idea that, you know, when... Bad things happen. Everybody kind of forgets whatever situation they're currently in. We all pitch in to help. I like that too. I hope if I'm in a similar situation, I don't think about my own safety and just like immediate. I hope my instinct is to do what these prisoners um, did, which is pitch in and help save lives. I think the irony is that a lot of people probably wouldn't step in and help. Totally. I, yeah, I question that about myself. In the moment, do you think I, I, I need to be safe? You know, so hmm. good on these prisoners. Good on James Harrison, and um, it was an interesting story. There, I learned a little history about LaGuardia Airport that I'd like to share. In 1934, Newark Airport in New Jersey is the only airport that services the largest city in the country, New York City. On November 24th, 1934. On a TWA flight from Chicago to New York that lands in Newark, the New York mayor, Fiorello H. LaGuardia, engages in basically a publicity stunt. When the flight lands in Newark, he refuses to disembark the aircraft and points to his plane ticket, which says Chicago to New York on it. He says, I bought this ticket, and it says I was going to be flown to New York, and I'm in New Jersey. So TWA relents and flies him to Floyd Bennett Field in Brooklyn. He gives a press conference to reporters, and this basically kicks off his campaign for federal funds to build a new airport to service New York City, which eventually leads to the construction of LaGuardia LaGuardia Airport that opens in 1939. Feels like he was having a diva moment there. (laughs) I thought it was a funny story, especially when you contrast it against life in 2019. Apparently in the 1930s, you could refuse to get off a plane and demand to be flown wherever you want to go. And airlines in the 1930s would respond, no problem, sir. Customer is king. We'll make a special flight just for you. These days, if you have an issue or an an airline requests that you exit the plane and you refuse, they send in SWAT to tase you beat you, and drag your half-conscious bleeding body off the plane. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently they're not, you know, offering private flights to Brooklyn for one anymore. Oh, I miss those days. Do you remember a couple years ago when it was like all the rage throughout the news where like 
passengers were just being like drug yeah. off bloodied off planes. I remember that. Was it multiple passengers? I, I think it happened. It, it seemed like on NBC News every day it'd say another man was dragged off the plane after a plane after an airline overbooks a plane and they can't get any volunteers and they just have to pick someone to leave. To and they'll just like it's like got a bloody mouth off. and just being drug off the plane. I'm just like there's a big difference apparently between 1939 and 2019. It's better to drug your passengers and just take them off unconscious. I don't know if we're going to drug anybody. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Don't so, do that at home. Don't do that at home, folks. Um, if anyone wants to learn more about Northeast Flight 823, read Tiger on a Leash by Alvin Moscow. It came out in 1961. It was an excellent book. I'd like to give a shout out to Stella Nahapitian at the Atwater Village Library in Los Angeles. She helped me transfer the book from the Central Library. It's a valuable book. It's in their reference section. You're not supposed to be able to check it out of the library, and they let me take it home for three weeks. So thank you very much to her. Uh, I think that's going to do it for today's episode of the Plane Crash Podcast. Thank you to Tess Andrade for braving it out and joining us today. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure to have you. And I'd also like to thank you, the listener, for spending time with us. You can find us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, and TuneIn. If you have a moment and want to leave us a review or a rating on iTunes, we'd love to hear from you. When we get reviews on iTunes from fans of the podcast or comments on Twitter, it really serves as fuel for us to put in the 50 hours of research and recording for the next podcast. So if you have a moment and you like this podcast and you want us to do more, give us some more fuel. Um, you can find us on Twitter at Plane Crash Pod. Our Twitter handle, handle is Plane Crash Pod. And we'd also love any reviews you could do on just Apple Podcasts. I hope you're all working hard out there, booking a flight to go on a vacation soon because you deserve it and the world is a beautiful place to discover. Thank you for your time. We'll be back in the near future. Until then, fly safe out there. Bye-bye.